Does an orthopedic condition or sports injury have you sidelined? Make your comeback with GW Hospital Sports Medicine. We offer services from neck to toe, including care for shoulders, hips, knees, ankles, and hands. Plus, we're the official healthcare partner of GW Athletics, the DC Furies, and the DC Revolution. Get back to doing the things you love. Learn more at gwhospital.com slash sportsmed or call 888-4-GW-DOCS. Physicians are not employees or agents of this hospital. Where you can find all your latest and greatest Steelers news. It's Dave Bryan and Alex Kazora. Always lit, talking Steelers. And now, here's Dave and Alex. Welcome to the Terrible Podcast, Season 13, Episode 89. He's Josh Carney. I'm Alex Kazora, SteelersDepot.com. Thanks for being back with us here this Friday, Steelers Nation. Josh, again, sitting in for Dave, who is on vacation. He'll be back on Monday. But Josh, thanks for coming back with him. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. For sure, for sure. So, um, you know, Friday, mid-February, kind of that in-between time from the end of the season when you get some movement with the coaching staff and some of the post, you know, regular season type content. You got the combine coming up here in a couple weeks. Not a ton happening in Pittsburgh right now, but one piece of news that broke in true Steelers news form just after Josh and I wrapped up the Wednesday podcast. And so that's why we didn't talk about it then. And we'll talk about it today. Longtime Steelers coach, the longest tenured coach on the Steelers staff, John Mitchell, officially announcing his retirement at the age of 71. Mitchell had been a Steelers coach since 1994, so a 29-year career with the Pittsburgh Steelers, initially their defensive line coach from 94 until 2017, and then became uh, more of a liaison-type role, uh, had the uh, assistant head coach label when Mike Tomlin was hired in 2007. Again, replaced by Carl Dunbar as a D-line coach officially in 2018, um, but still had an on-field presence and, you know, one of the best, if not the best positional coach in Steelers history. So that is a another loss of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Josh. Yeah, it's it's a big one, you know, and I think this is the same time as last year, uh, you know, when I was on the pod and, and the Steelers hired Brian Flores. So uh, in, in true Steelers fashion, uh, a coaching move happens uh, when Dave is on vacation. So, uh, yeah, really, really unfortunate for, uh, you know, John Mitchell retiring. That's going to be a big blow to the Steelers. I know that uh, he obviously wasn't the defensive line coach since uh, 2018, but like you said, still had a big on-field presence. Uh, just quite a quite a person. Um, you know, he my favorite thing about him is just his story at Alabama. Uh, he was one of the first black players under uh, Bear Bryant at Alabama, was a two-time captain, All-American down there. Uh, you know, just came into Pittsburgh. I believe he came from the Browns too. Um, was a defensive line coach with the Browns and then came over to Pittsburgh in 94. Uh, and then from there, just a massive impact with the Steelers coaching guys, you know, like Brett Kiesel, Aaron Smith, Casey Hampton, uh, you know, the list can go on and on and on. He just had a massive impact uh, on the Steelers defense in the trenches. And uh, like you said, one of the best position coaches ever in franchise history. Yeah, I think it's probably him and Dick Hoke or yeah. two of the longest tenured and I think two of the best. But yeah, Mitchell was as old school as old school comes. He's all about techniques. He, he worked those guys hard, but they were better players and better men for it. And the thing that I always will remember about John Mitchell as a coach is you better run to the football under yeah. Coach Mitchell. Like that was his big sticking point. That's what Aaron Smith did. And those things were passed down both by Coach Mitchell, but both by the players to future players. The way that I see 
you know, Kim Hayward and Stephon Tuitt, whenever he played, uh, their fanatical effort to the football that comes from Coach Mitchell. It comes from learning and watching Aaron Smith and Brett Kiesel. I remember, I'm going on a tangent here, but in Super Bowl 40, one of my favorite plays is not, you know, the, the Randall L touchdown to Heinz <laughs> Ward or anything like that. It was, I believe, early in the second half. It was actually a, a negative defensive play, but Sean, Sean Alexander, the Seahawks, uh, Seahawks running back, had the longest run I think he had of the day, like 25 yards. And at the end of it, you see Aaron Smith run 25 yards downfield to push him out of bounds. And so just moments like that, you know, big guys that are what it's the the phrase that Mike Tomlin has, you know, big guys run, little guys hit, that kind of thing. And under Coach Mitchell, the big guys ran and they ran their butt off. And so that's the uh, that's the big coaching point that I'll always remember when it comes to Coach John Mitchell. Yeah, that's a great recall by you. I'm going to have to go back and look at that play. But uh, just based off of your, you know, um, just you recalling that it that's that's Steeler football right there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's key with the defensive line. If you didn't run to the football, you weren't playing under John Mitchell. And, uh, you know, we've heard Cam Hayward, uh, you know, in the last few months or so now that he's bigger in the media, he he constantly talks about it. And uh, you see it on tape. That man sets the tone and that comes from John Mitchell. And, uh, you know, the Steelers are fortunate that that Cam Hayward played under Mitchell and is able to pass that along because it's such a key uh, integral part of the mentality of playing Steelers football on the defensive side of the ball. You run to the ball, uh, you finish plays, and uh, you know that's that's what Mitchell taught. And I think it wasn't just for the defensive line as well. I think it it translated to everybody else on the defense because when you see the big mm-hmm. men lumbering downfield, you know you're not going to see linebackers and, and defensive backs, you know, kind of lagging behind and. and um, taking plays off it it translated and, and it helped make the Steelers successful for a very long time right that's a great point and I and I hope and I imagine that Kim Hayward will talk about that on a future podcast mm-hmm. I know they're kind of doing some uh I think they recorded a bunch down at the Super Bowl during R- Radio Row and I don't know how many they're going to release those in the future but hopefully next time they actually have a kind of an in-studio you know podcast that they'll talk about that and I'm sure that the Kim will um, even Javon Hargrave, you know, Pittsburgh didn't draft the small school guys very often, but I think in large part, the reason why they took Hargrave was Mitchell went to that South Carolina State Pro Day and helped mm-hmm. work Hargrave out. And I'm sure obviously came away pretty impressed and Pittsburgh took him in the third round. So you see a guy that obviously is having a ton of success in Philadelphia is going to get paid handsomely this offseason by the Eagles or by somebody else. Uh, it kind of started with John Mitchell, you know, looking at him down there and putting his stamp of approval on the pick and allowed Pittsburgh to be comfortable taking an FCS player early, which they rarely, if ever, do. And so just stuff like that, identifying talent and then molding that talent, that was Coach Mitchell. Yeah, and I think, you know, Chris Hoke was on um, local radio the other day after Mitchell announced his retirement, and I, I thought he kind of, you know, summarized it best. You know, he just – he continued to say – Mitchell made me a better man than a player. And I think that's, that's what I'm going to remember most with John Mitchell, you know, aside from teaching guys to run to the football or his backstory at Alabama, like he just made the players that he brought under his wing, better men. And and that in turn made it a better culture in Pittsburgh and, you know, on and off the field, he was just a, a tremendous coach. And, um, you know, I think you've heard this before as well. I think Cam Hayward's talked about it, but the guy's, always thought Mitchell hated them um, <laughs> just because how tough he was on them. But uh, it was that, it was that fatherly love in a sense. It was that tough love. And um, you know, cause he believed in you, but uh, he was a fantastic coach, a great evaluator of talent. Uh, the Steelers consistently had very good defensive lines uh, when he was in Pittsburgh. 
And uh, yeah, he's going to be, he's going to be missed, especially from the evaluation standpoint moving forward, because the defensive line needs, needs some help uh, in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And, and the sad thing is, and I understand, you know, he's kind of been out of the, the picture for a couple of years, you know, Carl Dunbar replacing him and Mitchell, you know, kind of, again, the media guy describes it as more of a player development type role, working with community events. Mitchell still was on the field. You would see him at training camp, but, but obviously not much of a, not as much of a presence, uh, but a lot of fans didn't even know who he was or didn't know that yeah. he was the assistant head coach. And it was a lot of, you know, some people knew of course, but some people had that who reaction which really uh kind of disappointed me that it, that you know people just didn't know about him for how long he was a stealer and i understand fans aren't going to know everything and can't follow you know everything the way that we track it but hopefully that that retirement at least kind of brought back to light you know who he was what he did for this organization you saw the comments and statements from mike mm-hmm. tomlin and art rooney um just about how much coach mitch meant to pittsburgh so um that was just one other takeaway that i had from the news yeah, that's kind of how I felt too. You know, uh, when I put an initial tweet out there about his time in Alabama, I had some people kind of DM me and say I had no idea. You know, he was a he was a Crimson Tide, or he had that type of impact. And it's like, man, I, I know John Mitchell wasn't that out in the open, you know, very public facing sure. figure, but like he has an incredible story, and and more people need to know it. And it was disheartening to see some Steeler fans going, "Who? Like, who did they lose? I, I haven't heard of that guy." And um, yeah, it, I hope the Steelers do something for him this upcoming season. I'm sure Mitch does not want that at <laughs> all, but uh, I'm curious to see what they will do uh, for him. I would imagine he'll go into the Hall of Honor at some point, um, but I just I hope that they do something for him to kind of put his story back out there. I know the retirement has certainly helped that, but uh, he was just an instrumental part of the organization and losing that associate head coach in a sense is, is huge, especially in an off season where they've now lost three coaches off the coaching staff. It's getting kind of thin there. Right. Yeah. That's what I wrote about shortly after that, I believe on Thursday that they're down to 16 coaches and I know it's still mid February and, you know, Mitchell just retired and Brian Flores left a week ago. Um, And so, you know, they they have an opportunity to add and and potentially could add. What do you think about how many coaches do you think get added? If any, so far right now, 16 man coaching staff looks pretty small. As you said, what changes do you anticipate going forward? I think they'll probably add two guys, um, you know, maybe not on the defensive side of the ball. I think that obviously Mike Tomlin and, and Terrell Austin uh, still have prominent roles there, obviously. Uh, Jerry Olsavsky, I believe he's still the linebackers coach. I don't think that ever changed. I think Flores just kind of had uh, more of a hand in the the inside linebackers. But I would imagine, um, you know, they'll bring in some sort of defensive assistant and then uh, – maybe someone to try and replace Blaine Stewart, but I don't think there's going to be, you know, huge ads like some people have been clamoring for like a high level offensive assistant or anything like that. Um, I'd have to look at the, the landscape a little closer, but I would imagine they add two more uh, just to kind of fill Stewart and Flores a little bit and uh, kind of go from there. But yeah, I don't expect any massive big name ad like they did last off season with, with Flores. Yeah, I think two is sounds like the right number as well. I can almost guarantee they're going to replace Blaine Stewart's role because yeah. at the very least to give Danny Smith some help on special teams. I know that Stewart was labeled as the assistant wide receivers coach, and he certainly worked with with Frisman Jackson and was the co-receivers coach in 2019, that year after Daryl Drake passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, Stewart working with Ray Sherman. 
Um, but they're going to add, they're going to replace him. And then the question is, what else do they replace? They don't have to replace Flores or Mitchell, but if the right person comes along, certainly that would make sense. Now with the assistant head coach, I don't know if you would go with an external hire to, to become that assist, uh, assistant right. head coach. It'd be more of an internal thing. So, you know, does it Terrell Austin, maybe a Dunbar get promoted for that role? I'm not quite sure. And then with Flores, again, you don't have to replace him if the right name comes along. My guess is they'll, they'll I'm, I'm confident they'll replace Stewart. And I think they'll add one defensive coach at least to put them at 18 coaches for uh, a 2023 season. So, you know, we'll see who that could be. I don't know. I think it has been really silly to see some of the uh, suggestions of go hire Eric Bieniemy to be the assistant head coach, which is a terrible idea. He, a, it's not going to happen. He's going to become the uh, the OC in Washington. Maybe by the time people are listening to this, it mm-hmm. sounds like that's going to happen. But um, him and go, him going from OC in Kansas City to assistant head coach in Pittsburgh is not an upgrade at all. It's a downgrade, you know. So I think that's one of the silliest suggestions I've heard this offseason. Yeah, the the suggestions have been rather ridiculous. There was the thought of, you know, fire Terrell Austin and, and right. promote Brian Flores for a year or or you know, force John Mitchell out and promote Brian Flores to an assistant head coach. Like it's it's getting ridiculous. Um I, I know that recently Jim Caldwell was hired in Carolina and people were were pounding the table in frustration of, you know, why couldn't the Steelers do that? It's just it's just not what they do. I mean I'd have to go back and look before Mitchell was promoted to assistant head coach. And you might know this, but who was the assistant head coach under Tomlin before that? Well, um, nobody, because it was Mitchell who got that role in 07 when Tomlin got hired. Who was okay. it in 06? I could try to check. I'm not sure on that in Bill Cowers last year. Okay. So, I mean, it, it, it had been the same guy. So maybe they All don't right. rush to to try and, and fill that right away. I mean, it for better or worse, it kind of is a veteran staff at this point. Um, so maybe they don't need that that overarching associate head coach or assistant head coach. Um, but, yeah, I would imagine it would be an internal uh, promotion, whether it's Dunbar or Terrell Austin or whoever you would want to pick there. Um, but, yeah, the the silly season speculation has been a bit ridiculous. And for all the frustration that people can fairly have with the coaching staff, the size of it, the the um, I, I guess the experience or the. Um, I'm struggling for the word here, but they're not going to go out outside the lines here, outside the organization and get a big name, that splashy hire. Like the enemy, I see, I saw some people this morning saying the Steelers should just completely, um, you know, tear down the walls offensively and, and move heaven and earth to get the enemy. And who cares about the continuity with Canada and Pickett? It's just, it's getting ridiculous. And it's unfortunate that this is all happening while the Steelers are losing a, guy that had nearly 30 years in the organization and such a, a tremendous impact. I should have remembered this. It was Russ Grimm in 06 okay. as the assistant right. head coach there. Right. And then people thought that he was going to become the replacement to Cower. And then obviously this team went to Tomlin and kind of a surprise move. And then Grimm uh, ends up leaving. So that's who it was in 06. So, gotcha. you know, can't, yeah, teams have hired, you know, external guys like Jim Caldwell to be in that more senior role. Um, but that's a new coaching staff, a different way doing things in Carolina, not the way that Pittsburgh does things. Now, you know, could Pittsburgh in theory hire a senior offensive assistant? Sure. I can't say that that's impossible to happen. That won't happen. But it's not going to be Eric Bieniemy who wants to be an OC, wants to be the true play caller. Obviously, wasn't the guy in Kansas City because he was working with Andy Reid, had big input, certainly helped that offense. But he wants to probably step out of that shadow and not become this weird just assistant head coach, which, again, has more of an off-field role than on-field. 
description while Matt Canada is the OC. So the enemy is never going to happen. No, that's why he's leaving Kansas city. You know, I think right. that being under Andy Reed and there being that belief that Andy Reed's is the, the offensive mastermind and, and Bien-Ami is kind of just a figurehead. Uh, I think that's what he's trying to get out from underneath. So he's not going to all of a sudden come to Pittsburgh and be under the shadow of Mike Tomlin. Like that's just, it's, it's not going to happen. Um, I do wonder though, now that there's been, you know, significant changes on the off, you know, just on the coaching staff in general, if that kind of opens the door slightly more for Byron Leftwich as that senior offensive assistant in a sense. I mean, I know, Things did not end well for him whatsoever in in Tampa Bay, but there is that familiarity with the organization and with Tomlin and um, maybe a need for a a fresh set of eyes offensively. I do wonder if that might be a a possibility moving forward here. Yeah, if you want to suggest a name, and I don't get too caught up in the particular names because you could spend all day trying to to guess it. I think left, which makes sense because, you know, Flores got hired and, and the circumstances were obviously unusual. But he got hired because he couldn't really find a job anywhere else. No one else would hire him. And as far as I can tell, Leftwich is having a hard time finding employment. I know he mm-hmm. was, I believe, interviewed for the Ravens OC job that went to Todd Monken from Georgia. I think Leftwich even wanted the OC job in Notre Dame, and they promoted their tight ends coach. And so right. if you're losing out to the tight ends coach at Notre Dame, <laughs> might be having a tough time getting a job. And obviously the connection there to Pittsburgh, to Tomlin, who's spoken highly of him. I could see that. That at least makes sense. Will it happen? Who the heck knows? Will they hire an assistant in that role? Who knows? Will it be left which if they hire, hire anybody? Who knows? But that at least makes more sense than the enemy who has his choice to go to a bunch of different places in a prominent OC yeah. role. Um, so I think that's a it's a it's a you know worthwhile suggestion, but I just you know couldn't tell you what the odds of that happening are. Yeah, the only other one that, that comes to mind, and again, you're just kind of connecting the dots here, is is Mark Whipple. He was the uh, offensive coordinator at Pitt with Pickett. He was the uh, offensive coordinator last year at Nebraska. And then obviously Nebraska underwent significant changes, bringing in Matt rule. Whipple wasn't retained. And as far as I can see, he, he has no job anywhere. I know he was bought out by Nebraska, so he's probably got a nice uh, chunk of change he's sitting mm-hmm. on, but I mean, he's from Pittsburgh and there, there's that connection there as well. I don't know exactly what his role would be. I mean, it's not like he's going to come in and, and take over play calling duties ahead of Matt Canada or, anything like that. But those are really the only two names that I could even, you know, think about and begin to listen to is, is having a case for being brought in as that senior offensive assistant right now. Yeah. And I just want to make clear, and I know that you know this, and I'm going to write about this either t- today or tomorrow. And I've mentioned this a couple of times because I've seen so many people in Pittsburgh say, look, hire a pass game coordinator. They already have one. It's yeah. Matt Canada. He's a de facto pass game coordinator in Pittsburgh. The way it's been structured for years, and I really talked about this in 2020, they don't use official titles, but they've always had run game coordinators, which is the O-line coach, in this mm-hmm. case, Pat Meyer, and, and pass game coordinators, which is Matt Canada. That's why the OCs in Pittsburgh have always been quarterback, you know, receiver-based in, yep. in Canada, and Randy Feetner, and Todd Haley. That's why they're not running back coaches or former O-line coaches or anyone with that kind of background and so that's the way the structure remains in pittsburgh so it doesn't mean that you can't hire an assistant and, and have somebody that helps but to have an actual pass game coordinator they have one it's matt canada yeah yeah that's a great point and i think people forget that uh, or just flat out don't know it um, but that's that's largely how it's been and then that's why uh it's it's a little frustrating to see some of the people say oh just get a passing game coordinator left which can do that it's like well 
then you're taking stuff away from your offensive coordinator who you just decided to to bring back, you know, and that's not how the, the Steelers operate. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that article. And I, I do think that there is an opportunity uh, for a senior level assistant offensively to kind of be the role that, that Flores was, you know, an extra guy, an extra set of eyes uh, to come in and help with the game planning on that side of the football. I, I don't see how it would hurt. Uh, and I think with some of the, the changes on the staff the last few days, uh, we could see that now that there is an opening. Yeah, my thing with with Flores is that was such an unusual thing. For sure. You know, Pittsburgh had no intention. Even Tomlin admitted I had no thought to even hire Brian Flores because Tomlin thought that he was going to become a head coach or a DC or go somewhere else. And he only decided to pivot and hire him once he realized that Flores has nowhere else to go. And so mm-hmm. it wasn't like Tomlin was racking his brain saying we need this type of guy. It just kind of fell in the place through those unfortunate, unusual circumstances. So does that mean that Pittsburgh really wants to have that role filled offensively or defensively? It wouldn't seem so again, unless the exact right person came along. Right. Yeah. And and maybe I know that the, the circumstances aren't the same. Obviously Flores was going through the lawsuit and still is. Uh, I know that he talked about it a little bit in his introductory press conference with the Vikings, but if Leftwich can't continue to continues to not find a job, I mean, that might be a similar circumstance right. of like, hey, you're still out there. We can create something for you. Not that I'm advocating for it one way or another. I just think that there's there's more of a possibility uh, at this point. Whereas when he was first fired, my initial thought was absolutely not. Like if anyone watched the Tampa Bay offense last year, uh, why would you want to bring that in right now? So um, maybe there's an opportunity. Um, yeah, like you said, I don't think that they are are – you know, desperate to, to fill that Flores role, whether that's offensively or defensively, but there is certainly room now to do so. Yeah. And I just, I'm just thinking out loud, Josh, but offensively, if you hire an assistant, you know, what is their role going to be? I guess just general game planning, because you already have two quarterbacks coaches and and Mike Sullivan and David Corley, you have your pass game coordinator in Matt Canada. You have your run game coordinator in Pat Meyer. You have an assistant offensive line coach as well what would be the exact purpose or role? You know, we just talk about go hire this guy, Yeah. but to do what again, could yeah. you just say general game planning? Yeah. But you need you know, more you- than that. I, I wonder if it would be kind of general game planning and maybe take on some of that assistant wide receiver coach role, like Blaine Stewart had in the past. Not that, you know, not that left, Witch or Whipple, that's their area of expertise, right. but um, maybe they could bring that, that quarterback, sense yeah. of, of but then you need I, someone to help on date with Danny Smith with special yeah. teams because Stewart yeah. ran those drills that doesn't seem like a good fit yeah I, I don't know I mean do you want to have a guy on the staff that's just a general game planning help offensively I, I don't yeah, yeah because like Flores at least coached a positional group you know Flores was inside yeah. linebackers and obviously you know had his hand in the pot of game planning yeah I, I don't I don't know now the more that we talk about it, it's kind of like uh eh. Maybe it's not such a good idea, but um, yeah, that's a that's a great question. What would their role be? You're not going to bring them in, um, you know, like you said, to be the quarterbacks coach or or, or have a hand in calling plays. I, I have no idea. That's that's the the million dollar question there when it comes to that that decision on the offensive side of the football. Because you could certainly make the case on the defensive side of the football if mm-hmm. there was a a defensive name out there. But when it comes to offense, I think it's just that that name and that quote unquote figurehead in a sense. You know, that, that would be the potential grooming of the next OC, whether it was Leftwich or Whipple. But, 
yeah, I don't know. I mean, do you want to bring in a guy just to help with game planning when you've already got, you know, all those people in that room each week? I, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, you could. I mean, you know, it's not inherently a bad thing, but is that enough value for this team to go out there and hire somebody? And right. another thought, Matt Canada already has an assistant in Matt Tomsha, who's followed him basically mm-hmm. throughout his entire, you know, working career, you know, bouncing around colleges and now getting hired in Pittsburgh. And so that's their listed as the quality control guy, but I know he does more advanced game planning and specific scouting and maybe certain areas of the field, red zone, third down. I'm not quite sure. I'm maybe his uh, description changes week to week, but he has a an assistant Matt Canada does in Tom show, which is a name that I know most people aren't familiar with. And so even that role is filled. So again, does that mean that you can't hire an assistant? No, but What's if you want value? to talk about, you know, an actual brass tax, what is that guy going to do? I do struggle trying to find an answer to that. Yeah. Does it hurt? No, but does it aid you in any significant way, at least on paper? That's where I kind of struggle right now. Um, Cause like you said, he's not going to help with a certain position. It's not like left, which or Whipple is going to come in and, and, and step on Mike Sullivan's you know, toes and, and work with the quarterbacks exclusively. It would help if left, which were in that room because he played quarterback in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's a great question, Alex. I don't know where the the exact you know return on investment would be uh, with that position. So yeah, the more and more we talk about it, I think it might not be as good of an idea as it sounded in my head after uh, Flores and, and Mitchell both left the staff. Let me just ask you your thought on, do you think this team should have a larger coaching staff than it does? Do you think it's an issue? Because I think regardless if they add one, two, even three more coaches, they're going to have one of the smaller coaching staffs in football. My study last year had them as the, I guess, ultimately the third smallest coaching staff in the league, only ahead of the Raiders and the Patriots. Do you think that's an issue or do you think it doesn't really matter? It's just about the quality of the people and, of course, the players on the field. I think it's the quality of the coaches and the players on the field more than the number of people. Um, You know, I'm always of the opinion of, you know, less is more in a sense, especially if that less is higher quality. Um, But, you know, you look at the two teams in the Super Bowl. I think the Eagles and the Chiefs had the two largest staffs, uh, at least on the offensive side of the ball, in the league uh, this past year. And, um, you know, I know that there was the belief out there that the larger the staff, the more committed to winning you are or something crazy like that. But I don't have an issue with how small the staff is overall. I've just had an issue with the quality of coaches they've brought in or some of the internal promotions when they they move on from guys, whether that was – you know, Randy Feetner taking over for, for Todd Haley or, or Canada for Feetner, things like that. Um, I think they've done a good job in recent years going outside the organization, Eddie Faulkner at running back. I thought Frisman Jackson was a really solid get at receiver. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grady Brown looks like, you know, a, a diamond in the rough at this point. Um, I just think it's, it's about the, the quality of the assistance on the staff more than the, number of guys you have listed on your coaching staff and you're paying. Um, I think the Patriots have always had one of the smallest staffs under Belichick and look at the success that they've had. Um, so I, I really think it's more the the quality of the assistants and the, the players on the field than it is the number of coaches you have uh, on your payroll. Sure. I'm with you there. I think it is an, an inherently good or bad thing to have a big coaching staff or a small coaching staff. There's pros and cons to both. The average last year, because I did the study that looked at the entire league and mm-hmm. entering 2022, 
was about 21 coaches per, per, per team. Now the Chiefs and Eagles each had 22, so just right above the average. Okay. They had 10 on offense, which wasn't the most. It was uh, maybe slightly above average, but uh, the Dolphins, Tampa Bay, and several teams had 11. The Dolphins and Tampa Bay had 12 offensive coaches. And mm-hmm. so um, nothing extreme there. Pittsburgh last year had 19 coaches. That would have been 10 on offense, seven on defense, one on special teams. And you, of course, factor in Mike Tomlin as well. Yeah. Um, so those are the numbers there. Again, I don't think you know, the, the Dolphins had the biggest coaching staff in football last year. They weren't obviously the most successful team. Great start. And then Tua gets hurt. So you can explain, you know, personnel issues over coaching staff. Tampa Bay had the second largest coaching staff uh, tied for the most uh, on offense. Their offense was a mess last year. Yeah. So I don't see a direct correlation between, you know, big coaching staffs means that you win and small coaching staffs means that you lose. Again, I think it's kind of more about just who the people are and of course your personnel uh, more so than just the, the actual number of coaches. Yeah, I'm, I'm 100% with you. Uh, you know, I, I think that there is this, echo chamber out there right now that because Tomlin has, has had issues, it, it goes back to his coaching staff and the small amount of people. And he only wants yes, men, all that stuff that you guys all know. Um, I, I, I do not pay much attention to how many coaches he has underneath him. I only care about the quality of the coaches and, and what those, those guys resumes are when they enter the NFL or when they enter uh, the Steelers organization. And uh I really don't see a correlation between the Steelers small coaching staff and, and some of their struggles in recent years, whether that's on offense or defense. Um, I, I have, I have no issue really with, with the size of the coaching staff. Uh, I think I'm not in the minority here. I have some issues with some guys that are in the positions that they're in currently, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't pay attention to, well, they're, they're below league average in the number of guys that they have on their staff. So that's, that's why they're not winning. Um, right. I think you're kind of in the same boat. I, I'm, I worry more about quality than the quantity. Yeah, I'm generally in the same boat. Although it is, I think, still important to recognize that that they do have one of the smallest numbers. And For sure. Right now, it's pretty small. And again, things will add. And teams are in flux. The Colts and Cardinals just hired their head coaches, and so they're adding to their coaching staffs. And so we'll kind of give it a couple more weeks and see uh, how things look. I expect this team to hire at least one more coach to replace Blaine Stewart, and I think probably a second. And who knows what'll happen from there. Um, but it's not going to be central to why this team wins or loses in 2023 mm-hmm. because they had X number of coaches on their coaching staff. Yep, I'm with you. All right, switching gears now, Chuck Core for speaking to, I believe, the Trib the other day, kind of a little uncertain about his future, although I don't know really the, you know, in terms of the context and if that's something that's really you know should be alarming or just kind of standard player speak. Core for, of course, saying he wanted to stay in Pittsburgh. Josh, what are your just overall thoughts on Chuck Wilmer as the Pittsburgh Steelers starting right tackle? I, I think he's fine in, in the role that he's playing. I know obviously they want to be more run heavy. That's not really his forte, but I thought he's been, you know, pretty solid in pass protection. I thought he got better and better as the year went on uh, in his first year under Pat Meyer overall. Um, yeah. I, I don't think he's a, you know, a headline guy or one that you must you know, must have at right tackle at all times. But uh, I think he's been a, a successful developmental story since they drafted him. I know that I was kind of lower on the pick when they made it. Uh, I felt that there were larger needs there, especially right after they took uh, Mason Rudolph that draft. But uh, I mean, he's been a, a success as a, as a draft pick. He started a number of games. He's He's been solid overall. Uh, and I think he was he was pretty good last year. 
Um, is he slightly overpaid? Maybe, but uh, I think that the contract he signed last year, what was it, three years, just under $30 million, mm-hmm. was pretty much the going rate for a starting right tackle in the NFL with his type of experience. Um, so the market dictates those type of things, and the Steelers very clearly didn't want to use him. Um, I, I think I like him a little more than most. I think he's just a very good athlete at right tackle, and uh, he's still – relatively new to football i mean his backstory is pretty remarkable and i think he's just getting better and better and i, I thought that when they signed him to the deal that they did in the offseason uh it was a bet on him getting better and i think they were rewarded with that uh a bit in in 2022 do you expect him to be this team starting right tackle or at least starting somewhere along the o-line next i year? do i i think that they're going to roll into the season with the same starting five again, just based off the way they finished the season. Uh, and I think Chooks is, I don't want to say set in stone at right tackle, but I think he will be your day one starter at right tackle. And I don't really think that they are at least right now, based off of reading the tea leaves. I don't think that they are focusing on upgrading at right tackle currently. And the reason why I just said starting somewhere is because as I think you and I discussed Wednesday and I'm, I was talking to my buddy this morning about day one Jones and he really yeah. likes day one Jones. And if hypothetically he became a Steelers starting right tackle, would you shift to core for you could potentially have that conversation. I don't know if I would love that idea. Do some playing right tackle for years now, got yeah. pretty comfortable there. I know he was originally left tackle in college, but that's all a you know discussion for potentially down the road. I'm with you though. Overall, I think he will be the starting uh, offensive tackle and, most likely at right tackle next year. This team won't cut them. They're going to prioritize the continuity of the offensive line. Um, you know, if they happen to draft somebody like a left guard or maybe a stud left tackle, that could change the conversation a bit, but they're not going to willingly release somebody, um, you know, and, and potentially wreck that continuity that's been, uh, you know, growing along the show line. And the core four, you know, was fine last year, as you said, and not somebody that screams, this guy has to get cut. Right. And I, I think when you look at his his salary outlook as well, I don't think you're saving enough uh, to make it worthwhile. I think his dead cap before June 1st would be a little over six million. And I think he's set to make, uh, according to over the cap, his cap number, uh, you know, his cap number hold is, is just under 12 million. So uh, I'm sorry, just over 13 million. So you're not you're not saving a bunch on, on that contract if you cut him and you're losing a a multi-year starter who's 26 years old, has plenty of experience in the system. I don't see the reasoning behind why that move should be made. Yeah, if you cut him, I mean, you do save a decent amount of money, but then you have the, the cost to replace right. him, which right. is either a free agent, and I don't think that class is looking particularly strong this year because there's no internal replacement for a core no. right now. No. I mean, it's Trent Scott, who technically a free agent, but you could bring him back. Um, and, and it like it's Trent Scott. I mean, there's really nothing there. And I don't want Trent Scott to play a snap, let alone a thousand of them next year. Um, and so it'd be, a, you know, you have to go through the draft and you're kind of feel obligated to take a guy. And when you feel obligated to take a guy, you have to reach. And that's how you get already burns. And so mm-hmm. that's a situation that you want to avoid. So I really can't see any rationale for him being cut anytime soon and, and probably not at all. Yeah. And I think his comments, you know, saying he doesn't know what might or might not happen. Um, those were kind of the same thing as kind of like what Cam Hayward said in the offseason. Obviously, yeah, right. Cam Hayward has much higher standing and in, in, in place in the organization than the core for, but I think players throughout the league kind of don't take anything for granted, even if they're under contract, because uh, anything can happen in this league. But 
he seems pretty safe right now as we sit here on February 17th that he's going to be the starting right tackle. Um, is he upgradable? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't see him being upgraded upon this offseason. So um, I think he's the starting right tackle in 2023 and most likely 2024 uh, unless he completely flames out because, uh, I mean, the Steelers gave him that contract for a reason and, you know, unless there is significant cap savings next year, I don't see why they would cut ties uh, with a young tackle that they very clearly believe in. And I partially ask about a core four because this morning for the site, I finally put together my final sack breakdown of the season. And it's a you know, relatively long post you can read on, on Steelers Depot, but the offensive line sacks that I have charged for the uh, the starting five this year, Dan Moore at five and a half, Kevin Dotson, four and a half. Chuck Wilmer core four at four, Mason Cole at one and a half, and James Daniels are just a half sack. And so those are the numbers there. The penalty breakdown for the starting five, and these are accepted penalties only. I counted Kevin Dotson with 10, Dan Moore with nine, James Daniels three, Chuck Wilmer core four, three, and Mason Cole zero. Did have one called against him that was declined. And so ultimately, I didn't count it there for my my penalty breakdown. So the numbers there, the, I think the O-line sack numbers look good. Dan Moore's numbers dropped. And so that's an encouraging sign. Dodson's did go up. And so that's a less encouraging sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mason Cole was great. James Daniels with a half sack allowed is a phenomenal type number. That is super encouraging to see with the penalties. Kevin Dodson's 10 since 2015. That's the second most by an offensive lineman in Pittsburgh, only trailing David DeCastro who had 11 in 2016. Oh, wow. So I know some of those are the ineligible man downfield. And sometimes you wonder, do you blame the offensive lineman for that? Do you blame the, the ball getting out late? You know, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of a mix. There were times where there was one, I think in that Cleveland game, in the finale where Dawson just took off. Like he didn't yeah. wait. Like it was not even an attempt to be within that one yard buffer they give you. And so that's probably more on him. There were times earlier in the year where plays were, the ball went out way late because it got disrupted or whatever the case was. And it's harder to blame the offensive line directly for that. And some of those might be questionable um, by the, by the officials, but from the penalty aspect, Dotson with 10 more with nine, those are pretty ugly numbers. Yeah, those are pretty ugly numbers. And and that kind of goes back to the left side of the line could be considered the weakness uh, and where the Steelers are going to try and upgrade at this point. I thought that that left side of the line was pretty good as, as run blockers, but I thought they certainly had their issues uh, in, in pass protection. And uh, the penalties are, are pretty ugly to see. I mean, 19 combined on the left side. And then you look, there is a sizable gap between Dan Moore Jr.'s nine and then the next closest, which is Dan- James Daniels at three. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a, a sizable gap. But uh, yeah, the thing, honestly, the thing that stood out to me with the sack breakdown was that Kenny Pickett was in charge of, or was charged with nine of them. Um, I mean, that... Again, rookie quarterback likes to hold on to the football. He's going to take sacks. But, uh, yeah, that is that is a very high number. Um, and I wonder if the offensive line gets more blame than they should uh, for some of the issues, especially early in the season when it came to Pickett taking a lot of those hits and sacks. Yeah, but even happened late in the year. Uh, there were, I think, both in the Baltimore game I charged yeah. on Pickett. Um, and so – Wasn't there one in the Raiders game too that he just – did he get I mean, sacked in the Raiders game? No, I'm thinking, I'm sorry. I'm thinking the Bengals game where he like very clearly slid to his left. Yeah. Um, right into pressure. So I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, the quarterbacks combined picket. I charged for nine to lead the team by far. Trubisky, I charged for four. And you probably extrapolate that over a 
the amount of time that Pickett yeah. played, he probably would get to about nine as well. And so it's a good illustration that not all sacks are created equal. Not all sacks get charged for the offensive line. In fact, the majority of sacks uh, that I charged this year went to somebody other than an offensive lineman, whether that's a coach or a quarterback or a running back or what, what have you there. Um, but yeah, Pickett, I'm not, I'm not alarmed by that number. Nine's a, not, not a good number at all, but a rookie quarterback who's mobile yeah. and trying to see the limitations of how that mobility works in the NFL. I understand it. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing there is that, you know, he likes to hold on to the football to try and make those plays and buy time. And we saw that early in Ben Roethlisberger's career. No, I'm not trying to compare the two, but um, you know, they, they both liked to hold on to the football early on and extend plays and make plays on, on you know, in broken play situations. And, there, there is there a risk of sacks coming with the reward of an explosive play. And um, I'm not concerned by that number. I was just, I was surprised to see him um, sure. that high, honestly. But uh, yeah, going back to James Daniels, I, I think you and I kind of had some concern about him in the preseason and even in training camp. He looked really rough, mm-hmm. uh, especially in that Seahawks game, that, that first preseason game. Uh, but once the regular season started, I thought he was, he was fantastic and uh, was quite the signing. Um, what do you think changed with him the most from training camp and preseason into the actual regular season? Cause it was, it was night and day difference. It felt like. Just comfort getting comfortable in Pat Meyer's system. It's a mm-hmm. different way of teaching. It's the really aggressive on body pass sets. Um, so having a really strong first punch is critical for Pat Meyer, you know, in those on body pass sets, you're coming forward a bit. And even on the off body pass sets, you're setting flats. You're never giving ground. You're always being the aggressor and you're never really trying to catch or trying to, you know, kind of be really passive about it. And so that was an adjustment for Daniels. I think um, working independent hands and just working on that first punch um, and then being able to move his feet as he's punching and being, being the aggressor, I think was, was his biggest issue to start, but yeah, he got super comfortable. And I thought by year's end, he was really buying in the Myra system and did a great job winning these reps early and creating that first significant contact. I mean, you can apply that to, I think, you know, pretty much his, his entire offensive line mm-hmm. um, because they all got comfortable. Chooks, the one thing for Chooks is like this guy is is pretty steady. Like he was he was never a guy that looked bad early on under Pat Meyer. I think this mm-hmm. guy's just used to new offensive line coaches and he just kind of rolls off his back. But um, yeah, I, I thought overall, you know, Daniel's getting more comfortable and and with the, the technical teachings of the system uh, was pretty important. The one the one question I had for you, just overall interior offensive line. I know that we're still really early in the draft process here, but names like Osiris Torrance out of Florida have been connected to the Steelers. I know that Jonathan Heitritter is very high on John Michael Schmitz uh, from, from Minnesota. How do you, would you be willing to shift pieces around up front? Like say, I know Torrance was a, a right guard in college. Um, would you shift Daniels to left guard or force Torrance to, to learn left guard right away in the NFL? And same with Schmitz. I mean, he was a center at Minnesota, mm-hmm. Obviously, Mason Cole is a center, but has guard capability. Would you force Schmitz to learn left guard, or would you slide Cole out the left guard and let him get settled there, even though he said recently his preference is, is center because of mm-hmm. that leadership? Yeah, it really would be a case-by-case thing, Josh. I would just say overall, the fewer pieces I can move around, the better. I think yeah. the more that you have to move you know, two guys to try to compensate, that creates more and more issues for you. And I would rather have a, a new guy have to move than a veteran guy, mm-hmm. an established guy have to move. And, you know, at James Daniels, for example, who just kind of got comfortable at right guard with those pass sets, flipping the left guard. I know he's played there before, but now he's going to, you know, flip everything. And is he going to have to kind of go through growing pains again as he learns the left side of the line and kind of switches everything with his punch, with his steps, his footwork, and just in, in his mind. So 
you know, it, it, for example, with John Michael Schmitz, I would keep Mason Cole at center. I think he was solid at center last year. He mm-hmm. likes playing center. He likes the leadership aspect, the vocal aspect. And so I would ask a rookie to come in and play left guard. I know he's never done that before. That'd be, you know, new and foreign to him. But I'd rather do that than kind of the semi-adjustment for Cole at left guard with the just newness of a of a rookie center being in there. So, um, you know, Torrance, could that be different? Maybe, but probably not. I think just, you know, broadly speaking, and again, it's case by case in my head, but broadly speaking, I would, I would make the rookies move and keep the the veterans where they're at. That's where I'm at. I mean, even if you look at, at Kevin Dotson, he was a right guard in college right. uh, and, and they moved him obviously to left guard. So I think it's certainly easier to, to move the rookie entering a new scheme into a new position rather than trying to, to shuffle a number of pieces. Um, so I, that, that, that's just what I was curious about. I know that those two names have been popular uh you know, kind of among the fan base and, and some in the media. So I uh, just wanted to get your thoughts on that overall. Yeah, no, it's a good question overall, and we'll see. And there could be some movement for for somebody. Um, do you think this team runs back its starting five offensive line for 2023? And do you think there's at least one change in the starting lineup? I, I think they run it back. Um, I do think that they are going to try an upgrade on Kevin Dotson through the draft. Um, but I think when we get to training camp, that first group that hits the field at St. Vincent will be the same starting five that we what saw. What about week one? I guess this is kind of more of a week one yeah. question. Um, hmm. I'll say it's the same, the same starting five. It, it, you know, based off of, of Tomlin's comments and his end of year address. And then obviously, you know, Rooney mentioned that the, he was pleased, but there's still room for upgrade. Um, I, I still kind of think that they're going to, lean in on on pat meyer and uh it, from everything we've gathered i mean pat meyer sounds like he he likes what he saw and, and continuity is such a key thing with mm-hmm. the offensive line you got to let these guys continue to grow and gel and and play together so um i would bet that it's the same starting five when we hit the field week one um but i do think that they are going to try and, and bring in some competition at least for dotson uh and it, it feels like the steelers are higher on dan Moore than a lot of people um, outside of the organization are right sure. now. No, I agree. I To answer my own question, I think certainly it's possible they run it back and it's certainly higher odds than I thought it was, you know, six months ago at the start of the season, thought there was no chance they were going to run that group back. I think there's at least one change though. And I think it comes somewhere along that left side. Center and over to the right is fine. They're not going to touch it. Left mm-hmm. side with either Dan Moore, let's say one of those stud tackles fall to 17, hard to pass on. And I'm, I I defend Dan more than most people, but I can recognize this is not going to be the next elite level top five yeah. left tackle in football. At best, he's going to be an above average to good type left tackle. He's got to work on his punch against power bull rushes. If he can do that, then he'll become, I think, a good left tackle in football, but not a great one. And then left guard Kevin Dotson to me, you know, Got better the second half of the year, physically gifted as all heck, super talented, but equally as frustrating as a player. Technically, within my scheme, hard guy for me to trust. And so I'm looking at a you know potential upgrade there. And, and he's a free agent uh, after yeah. 2023. So there's that consideration um, as well. So who that is, where that is exactly, left tackle, left guard, harder for me to say. And yes, it, it wouldn't shock me if they did run it back, but I'll I'll be a little different and say, um, there's a new left tackle or to me more likely a new left guard for week one in 2023. Yeah. I think if one of those stud left tackles falls and is on the board at 17, I, I don't think they're going to hesitate. Uh, and that 
that makes me wonder, you know, if they do bring in that that stud left tackle in the first round and they might not find that upgrade on the interior. I know it's kind of been kicked around out there. Do you consider sliding more inside, you know, not give up on that developmental piece, or do you just put him into that swing tackle Trent Scott type role um, and kind of let him continue to develop? Yeah, I, I could see a fit at left guard because he's a good run blocker that mm-hmm. creates good movement with with angles on his down blocks. But I would prefer him, prefer him as the swing tackle because the tackle depth is zilch right now. And if I could draft a left tackle and then more becomes that swing guy, I know he would have to basically learn right tackle. He did it, I think, a very little bit early in his Texas A&M career, and he got a couple of reps there in training camp. Mm-hmm. I think his rookie season, whenever Zach Banner was kind of sort of in the mix, theoretically. Yeah. Um, but I, I would just make him probably more the swing guy. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I mean, again, it goes back to moving a bunch of pieces. And I think if you just let more take a step back and because remember, I mean, you, you know this, but I think it's forgotten with more. He was kind of thrust into the starting lineup mm-hmm. late in training camp because of Banner's injury. Um, right. So, and I think he was working at right tackle then and, and Chooks was at left tackle and then they ended up flipping them um, back before week one. So um, I would, I would like to keep more at the tackle position, kind of let him be that swing guy, that extra, um, you know, that extra tight end in a sense in, in obvious run situations. Uh, cause he is a very good run blocker. I was, I was pretty pleased with him overall in that aspect of his game this past year. But, um, yeah, if a, a stud tackle falls in the first round, uh, it would not shock me if we have uh, a, a new starting left tackle in week one. And at the least, this team needs better depth. The depth here is so oh, yeah. scary thin and they got away with incredible health luck last year. <laughs> I mean, just, ridiculously good to, to basically to, to have the same starting five in all 17 games and and their worst injury was losing Mason Cole for a half I think in the second half in the rematch against Cincinnati that was mm-hmm. their biggest loss of the year and, and that's not going to happen again they're not going to have that good luck and the depth right now is still thin even if you assume these guys come back like Trent Scott um, Haas and to me is a center only you know Kendrick Green probably won't even make the team next year right uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Jesse Davis, he's going to be a free agent, not a guy that I want to see play. They yeah. got to bring in some depth. Definitely do not want to see Omar Khan trading a late round pick for a Jesse <laughs> Davis type again. For sure. Uh, so they they have to address depth. And, and hopefully that happens, uh, you know, here in free agency and in the draft. I, I would love to see, a, you know, an, an interior swing guy uh, taken, whether that's with the, the 119th overall pick or one of those seventh round picks. Uh, and kind of let them come in and develop, but they have to, they have to address depth. They got so lucky last year. I think house and I played what 46 snaps. So it was, I think he had one snap and was at the Buccaneers game and then Cole came back in. And then I think he missed the half against the Bengals, like you mm-hmm. said. So, I mean, you're not going to get that again in, in 2023. So you have to have the depth and they just do not have it right now. Yeah, they don't. Uh, absolutely. So I, I really think, and I know it's still so early to talk about these things with any level of confidence or certainty, but I really think the way that you laid it out in your mock draft could really come true on draft day, where the, the two seventh round picks, one is that versatile offensive lineman, and then one's a pass rusher. Mm-hmm. I, I can see that being easily the way this team goes to round out the draft. Don't think it's going to be a quarterback, do you? <laughs> God, I hope not. No, I don't think it will be. Um, it'll be interesting because they will have to add, you know, they, they carry four quarterbacks. And let's assume right now Trubisky stays and we can safely assume Rudolph is gone. And so that yeah. you got two, you got Pickett and Trubisky, you got to add two more. 
they'll have to you know do something around draft time, be it a late round pick, which I hope doesn't happen, or more likely an undrafted free agent. Um, but those guys typically quarterbacks you got to pay if you want a decent one at least in terms yeah. of offering the partial base salary guarantee. Will that model change under Con? I don't know. That's going to be one of the big things I'm watching for is does that change? Does Pittsburgh only offer the the small meager signing bonus pool or do they circumvent the rules like every other team in football and offer a partial base salary guarantee? Um, does that change from Cobra to Con? We'll have to see. Yeah, and, and not to to say that, you know, Andy, you know, Weedle's gonna come in and, and bring everything the Eagles did, but I think that they spent a lot of money on UDFAs as as well. So I am curious to see how the, the Steelers kind of attack the undrafted free agent portion of things after the draft, because there's a lot of good players that you can find there. Uh, you know, obviously the Steelers did that last year with Jalen Warren, but um I think if they do they do have two quarterbacks right now, they're gonna want to carry four. I think that the route to go is, you know, kind of that smaller school UDFA guy that you can get on the practice squad and develop. And I do think that they'll probably be watching the XFL pretty closely uh, mm, sure. here in the off season, looking for a quarterback from, from that area. Yeah. If I had to guess the way they're going to add the other two quarterbacks undrafted free agent, and then maybe like a real true bottom of the barrel journeyman veteran, like a uh, Nick Mullins. I was trying to go through names yeah. the other day and maybe even Mullins is too big of a name, which tells you how, bottom of the barrel <laughs> I'm talking about here, but something like that, where it's a guy that's been in the league for a couple of years, maybe has played a couple of snaps, but um, no one that's going to, you know, cost above the minimum is kind of my, my thought yeah. there. It, it's funny. You mentioned Jalen Warren and, you know, we talk about so much undrafted guys and they look for the scheme fit. And the one benefit of not being drafted is you can kind of pick where you want to go. And so you're looking at depth charts and organizations and coaches, but oftentimes guys just go where the money goes. And Jalen Warren was asked, I think by Aditi uh, during the season, why'd you pick Pittsburgh? And he said, they offered me the most amount of money. And, and that's mm -hmm. what it comes down to. And mm -hmm. it wasn't a lot of money. It was like 12 grand. I mean, it was, you know, just, just a pure signing bonus, but that has to be a thought and a consideration. You got, you just went undrafted. You're already pissed and, and sad about that. You want to get a little bit of uh, compensation for that sadness. And so a team's going to offer you more money in the form of a partial, you know, base salary guarantee, then you're going to take it. And that's going to be just for a, maybe one or two guys of your class. It's not yeah. like your whole class is made up of those guys. It's for the one or two biggest, you know, could have been drafted type names. The rest will be the typical, you know, signing bonuses. But if you want, you know, one of the top quarterbacks who go undrafted or Carson Strong last year, for example, um, you're going to have to to pay that guy more than just a signing bonus. That's I'm convinced that's the reason. And the only reason why they took Ola Dokin was because if they didn't mm -hmm. draft him, they weren't going to be able to afford to sign him. Um, because they're not going to offer him enough money. And so I'm 100% convinced that is the sole reason why they drafted him. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. And I thought you were spot on when you mentioned that after they drafted him. Uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people were upset with that pick then and still are. And um, there was a method to the madness uh, that, that Kevin Colbert had going there. Um, but hopefully they don't uh, run that back here this year and burn one of those two picks on that that position uh, overall. Because I have seen some some seven-round mocks that have – you know, the, the quarterback from BYU and Jaron Hall as kind of that that guy. And um, while he's an intriguing guy, I don't want to spend one of those two valuable seventh round picks, especially after they don't have a fifth and sixth rounder right. uh, on a, a QB three at this point. So uh, we'll see how they, they attack uh, undrafted free agency. Hopefully they spend a little more money and kind of catch up with the rest of the league now that they have a, a newer, fresher perspective in the front office. All right, Josh, any other Steelers thoughts that you wanted to talk about? Anything else that I'm missing? Any other news or anything noteworthy you want to 
discuss. The, the one thing I wanted to discuss was the, the Trey Norwood article you did uh, yesterday and kind of set Twitter ablaze when you put out the uh, missed tackle percentage and uh, he was double uh, the, the rest of the top five. Um, where are you at on, on Trey Norwood after year two? I know that he had his struggles, but um, are you reading a ton into the, the missed tackle percentage from this past year and the fact that he was phased out or is he even a, a, not a lock, but is he even in the team's projected plans defensively moving forward? I mean, he'll be in camp next summer, yeah. and we'll have to see what happens with Edmonds and Casey, both pending free agents. If both stay, that's going to mean a lot for Norwood's lack of playing time and the path to do it. If both go, hypothetically, that's going to you know, potentially mean quite a bit for Norwood's path to the playing time and increased involvement there. But I just think it was a disappointing sophomore season, I thought, as a rookie. I think he played well, seventh round pick, wore a lot of different hats. Once they kind of reduced and pared down his role, not didn't ask him to do too much, didn't ask him to play in a bunch of different packages, became more just a dime guy. He played his best football, picked off his first pass, which was pretty important because that's the, the one that allowed Ben to come back out on the field against the Browns mm-hmm. for a final kneel down. And so that was a pretty special moment there for him. It was Minka that tipped it, but Norwood uh, caught it and, and picked it off. Um, but yeah, th- this year was pretty poor. Um even before Casey came back, Norwood didn't play well. The missed tackles, which come courtesy of you and the great work that you do, that's how I got that number um, from. Yeah, I thought that that was a big issue. And then as soon as Casey came back, Norwood went to the bench and only mm-hmm. played whenever there were injuries to uh, to Minka in that Saints game with the appendectomy and then Edmonds in Week 16 against the Raiders. The dude played 15 snaps over the second half of the season. And yeah. you know, I know they brought in Casey and he's the veteran guy, but I mean, he immediately jumped Norwood despite being a one-year guy that wasn't signed until the draft that missed the first two months of the year with a broken arm and first game back, Minka's unavailable. Instead of going Norwood, they went Casey who played every single snap against the Saints, which mm-hmm. says a lot about, I think, where they were at on Trey Norwood. Um, so does that mean that he can't come back? No, he could come back and have a role. It'll be a big 2023 for him, a big summer but it was a really disappointing sophomore season. It really was. And it, he kind of regressed to, to what I saw on tape coming out of Oklahoma as a tackler. He was never that. You know, was that he a good physical. tackle? I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't as bad as he was in Oklahoma, but he was never, he didn't make a lot of tackles at Oklahoma. I think no. he was 17 his last year. I mean, I thought he held his own as a rookie, but I thought he really regressed, as you said, in, in 2022. Yeah, he. I mean, he was around the football a lot at Oklahoma, made a lot of plays on the ball, but yeah, the tackling numbers were very, very low, and there were some times, even in run fills, when he'd come down from that that center field safety role and try and fill the alley, that he just did not bring physicality on tape at Oklahoma. He was, you know, diving at ankles and just kind of going for the, the the arm tackles, and then his first year in Pittsburgh you know, we saw him strike some guys and, and bring some physicality and he was a solid tackler. Uh, but then this year, yeah, he really regressed not as, as, you know, not as bad as he was in college at times. Um, but there were some ta- missed tackles on tape where it was like, what, what is this guy seeing? What is he mm-hmm. doing? He really, I don't know if he was dealing with something, uh, with his shoulder that, that, uh, kind of hindered him, but there were times where he'd go in when he was using his right shoulder and would not, not wrap up, not, not uh, initiate contact like he normally did as a rookie. Um, But I'm not overly concerned with that missed tackle rate. Um, Overall, I think that he showed a lot his rookie season that he can do it at this, at this level. Um, I know that most of his, I think he had three or four misses on special teams out of the 11 that he had on the year. Um, 
that he has to clean up. But mm-hmm. I mean, he's that Swiss Army knife, like Tomlin has has said in the past, and I think he's going to have an opportunity to have a role again in Pittsburgh. But uh, but what is that role? I'm trying to because if yeah, I don't I don't a think he's dime be defender. That. I guess. Yeah, I think it would be that dime defender in a pinch. I don't think he's going to be that third safety like Casey was this past year. Uh, I don't think he's going to be that that key special teams piece. Um, I, I just think he's going to have an opportunity to be on the field, maybe in that dime role at times. Um, but he has to have a strong camp, plain and simple. Like he he has to have a strong camp, make some plays. Um, you know, showing in in preseason that he's has improved as a tackler. Um, because I mean, put simply, the tape was rather rough this past season, um, especially at the point of contact for him. But uh, I did see people uh, kind of freaking out uh, under your tweet uh, last night about the the number of missed tackles he had, and that's uh, a high number. Um, that's certainly higher than than league average in a sense. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not overly worried about a, a depth safety. Um, moving forward, especially after the rookie year he had. I mean, he he was solid as a rookie. So I think I definitely think he was dealing with something this past year. Yeah, I don't I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say. I, it's hard I, to speculate. I, I don't that, know but. what league average is for a missed tackle rate, but I promise you it's nowhere close to 32 percent. No, and, no. And I know that DBs are going to miss at a higher clip. They're smaller. They're out in space more often. And you look at the top five list that I tweeted again, courtesy your numbers. Four of them are defensive backs, but Norwood's in first place at 32.4%. Second place, Arthur Millette at 15.7%. So Norwood is more than doubling where second place is at. And Millette at least has the excuse of, I'm the slot corner. I come downhill. I got to tackle running backs quite yeah. often, and sometimes yeah. I'm going to miss that. Um, and so Norwood was at 13% his rookie year and exploded to 32.4%. So that's completely unacceptable. And if you mm-hmm. can't tackle, man, I know play. it's become yeah. less of an issue maybe in Pittsburgh as they focus on takeaways. It's, it's a little less of the Dick LeBeau cover three tackle to catch, but still got a tackle to play on special teams for Danny Smith to, to, to you know be a, a third down guy that Norwood is, third down guy, get off guy. You can't miss tackles there. I know that happened at least once or twice this year with third down missed tackles that allowed a first down to occur. Um, that's that's ways mm-hmm. to go to the bench. And so, you know, I, I don't think both Edmonds and Casey will return. I think one of those guys comes back. And so mm-hmm. that could reopen the door for Trey Norwood, but he's got to earn that right because I thought this year was pretty disappointing. It was, it was. And that's why I said he has to have a very good training camp and, and kind of get back in the good graces because I, I, like you said, it's not the Dick LeBeau defense where you have to be a good physical tackler. There's more emphasis on turnovers and, and Norwood has good ball skills, but uh, if you can't tackle in this league, then you can't really be on the field. And uh, I was looking uh, in the off season last summer uh, just kind of trying to figure out because we get a lot of those questions of, you know, what's the league average? Um, the only thing I could really find pro football focus based on their grading, um, you know, they had a, a podcast where they talked about the missed tackle percentage and all that. And typically uh, they give a a 60 or above uh, grade in the tackling department, which is considered, you know, above average for them. If your missed tackle percentage is anywhere from, you know, 13% or lower. Um, so that's kind of the, that's their benchmark in a sense of, okay, mm-hmm. if you're an average tackler, you're at 13% and anything lower, you are an elite level tackler. Um, whereas Cam Hayward, I think, what did he have uh, this past season? Um, I know he was one of the tops um, 
for the Steelers and, and missed tackle percentage as far as how low it was right there with Devin Bush, which I know upset a lot of people. But yeah, uh, you were talking about something people got <laughs> mad at me about. It wasn't about Trey Nord. It was me saying and it was just one guy asking. I wasn't, you know, volunteering the information. But Devin Bush, for all his warts, is an excellent tackler. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that was the surprising thing because we he was so bad the year before and then you know, this past season, I think I got to like week eight and I was like, wow, Devin Bush has a really good number. You know, he's not around the ball a lot, but when he's there, he's making the play, um, you know, so that was that was impressive from him. But like Cam Hayward, his tackling grade this past year, um, it doesn't make a ton of sense based off of what I just said, because he had a, a, a 4.7 percent missed tackle rate, but his tackling grade was only a 68.4. So just above average. Um, what is that even? What is even tackling grade? What does that encompass? How do they yeah, define that? That's let me look at their key here. Um, just says PFF grade for tackling. That's oh. all it says. Well, that's so, a great explanation. Yeah. Thanks, so, PFF. Yeah. They, um, you know, for all their warts, I, I like the snap count and all that stuff, but there are some key, you know, grades in here where I'm like, how did you formulate that? Um, so, yeah, I mean, the year before, I think Hayward led the Steelers in least amount of missed tackles, and he was an 80, um, 80 overall tackle grade. So that's kind of where I'm at. And based off of just kind of looking at, at guys in the league, um, I can pull up the safeties here and kind of get you a, a general um, tackling grade in a sense. Let me look here. So let's do minimum percentage we'll do 20 percent of, of 500 snaps so yeah like the average the average score for like the top safeties is like 13 percent um okay so that's i mean guys are gonna miss tackles you know it's 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 sure. that simple um guys are gonna miss tackles it's hard to tackle in the nfl uh so i i typically operate on anything 12 and a half to 13 percent and above uh is concerning um, but Norwood's 32, what was it? 32.4 mm-hmm. is absurd. And I think one of the highest season ending missed tackle grades I've ever charted in the six years I've done this. Yeah, I think so. Now, maybe that's a one year of noise and it's a smaller sample size. So you understand that. And he was 13% his rookie year. And so there was one okay, acceptable year and mm-hmm. then followed yeah. by one objectively terrible year. And so we'll see what 2023 brings, but certainly one thing that we'll, uh, be watching there uh josh kind of winding down today's show no official mailbag again dave and i will do that monday whenever he returns but i I do want to kind of just throw a couple of rapid fire questions at you just just to get your take on the off season some kind of predictions and some thoughts maybe on the uh 2023 season so uh just a couple questions for you here josh cam sutton does he return to to, to pittsburgh yes or no cam sutton return to pittsburgh yes uh he will be re-signed before free agency starts that's that's my official stance Okay, what about and this will, next ones will be free agency related. Uh, Terrell Edmonds does Terrell Edmonds return to Pittsburgh? Yes, yes, I think he's the guy over Casey. What about Demonte Casey? No, I think he's gonna. I don't think he's gonna sign anywhere like he did this past year. I think he's still gonna be available come draft time, but I don't see him returning to Pittsburgh. Okay, Zach Gentry, stay or go? Oh. I'm going to say stay, but that's a, a like 51, 49% mm-hmm. stay right now. A hesitant stay. Derek, yes. Derek Watt, stay or go? Go. 
Yeah, okay. he's yeah. They're going to save money there. Most and I, I, we get this question all the time, and I I always give like a very political non-answer to this, but I'll, I'm going to kick it to you here. Most likely position this the Steelers draft as we sit here today. What position are they most likely to take at number seventeen? Oh. That is a great question. Um, I'm going to say cornerback. I think it's a great class. I think there's going to be someone available there that they really like. Uh, There's going to be a run on tackles before they get to 17. So I'm going to say cornerback, and I think that's going to upset a lot of people because they are wary of previous failures at the position. All right, fair enough. Um, Do the Steelers trade down at any point? in the 2023 NFL draft, any trade downs? Oh, yes. I, I think they will heavily consider it at 49 overall to try and recoup one of those fifth or sixth round picks. Okay. And then I think the last one I have, and this will be more of a 2023 in season question, but who has more receiving yards next year, Deontay Johnson or George Pickens? George Pickens. I, okay. I think George Pickens will have more yards just based off of the the deep shots. Right. So who has more catches? Deontay. Deontay okay. will have more catches. Okay. That's kind of where I figured your head was at there. So, all right. Just wanted to kind of get your uh, your take on a couple of rapid fire Steelers questions there. So, Josh, any other thoughts? I uh, really appreciate you, you know, sitting in for Dave here these last uh, couple of episodes. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, it's a blast to do this. Definitely trying to keep the seat warm here for Dave till he gets back from the much needed vacation. I hope he's he's having a great time there in San Diego. Uh, no, I don't have anything else. It's kind of a slow time right now for the Steelers. Uh, hopefully things will pick up here. But uh, yeah, we'll see what they do with the coaching staff. And, and John Mitchell is absolutely going to be missed. Yeah, definitely. So we'll see what the weekend's uh, weekend brings. Probably be pretty quiet on the Steelers' front, though you never know. Again, they're going to add coaches, I think, in, in some capacity at some point. So we'll just wait and see if and when uh, that occurs. So I've yet again failed to pre- uh, prepare an outro here, so I'm going <laughs> to give this another another attempt here, hopefully slightly better than last time, but no guarantee. You can follow Dave Bryan on Twitter at Steelers Depot. You can follow Josh Carney on Twitter at by Josh Carney. You can follow myself on Twitter at Alex underscore Kazor. If you'd like to donate to the site, there's a donate donate button up on there. No, no obligation, but we certainly appreciate that. Um, appreciate you guys listening to the Terrible Podcast, and we'll catch you next time.